This is an RNZ podcast. We welcome to One Sport. There's outrage across football tonight after the announcement of a breakaway European Super League condemned as greedy and embarrassing by some of the game's greats. Big name English Premier League teams... Among that was how the sports news kicked off on TVNZ's One News last Monday. And it's not often that European football leads the sports bulletin on our 6pm news here. But as we heard there, it wasn't because of anything that happened on any football pitch anywhere in Europe. The action was behind the scenes in boardrooms and it rocked the entire world of sport, not to mention the entertainment industry and the media industry. It was a specialist reporter in sports and business, Tariq Panja of the New York Times, who broke that story last weekend. And a breakaway league featuring the most popular teams in the UK, Spain and Italy would have upended elite football all over the world. Two former captains of one of the clubs backing the big breakaway, Manchester United, reacted like this. Absolutely disgusted. This is, for me, a war on football. But both of those guys now make their living as broadcasters and became multi-millionaires playing in the English Premier League, a competition designed 25 years ago exclusively for Rupert Murdoch's Sky TV, which has become a multi-billion dollar business off the back of it since then. So if the top 20 English clubs had turned their backs on their football league to take part in the English Premier League 25 years ago, why this outrage at this time at the thought of a new European version? Because this one would be a closed shop set up by the clubs with the biggest financial clout and not even the most successful ones. Indeed, one of the other English clubs on board, Tottenham Hotspur, haven't been the champions of England since 1961, which is 60 years ago. And their London rivals Arsenal haven't done a lot either since club legend Ian Wright was their biggest star 25 years ago. And when he heard the news about the breakaway league last weekend, he pulled over in his car and recorded an impromptu video bagging his own club, which went viral in a flash. Where are we going with it? Where's the jeopardy? Who goes down? Who wins? What do they win? It's not meant to be like that. You dream of playing the Champions League and the, and the World Cup. Now they're saying as a player, you're not allowed to play in those competitions. How do you feel as a player right now? I'd be absolutely shitting myself now if I'm a player. Now these long-retired players have a voice and big social media followings, but they don't sway modern sports and media companies. The people who do are the people who came up with this plan, who were described like this by Carl Anker, a reporter for the subscription-based digital sports news platform, The Athletic. And now what we have is just more rampant, boring hypercapitalism by creatively dull people who, when they're giving a choice between protecting those who want some entertainment and just their own pathetic, boring interest in making money. And it is boring, right? You're making more money to what end other than to have more money that you cannot spend within your lifetime. Among the media companies looking on, incidentally, was the big beast of pay TV here, Sky TV. Each year had broadcast the European Champions League exclusively for its Sky Sports subscribers. And that competition would be gutted if the top teams in Europe break away into a new league. We'll find out more of what they made of that a little later. But just like the ex-players turned pundits in the media, the fans of the clubs themselves also, almost universally, condemned the idea of a new league. And on Wednesday morning, the deputy sports editor at The Sun newspaper in London, Martin Lipton, told Morning Report the plan was already falling apart. This is a thing that's, that's, that's grown from an idea into a full concept and then becoming uh, a bag of wind in the space of three days. It's a remarkable football story. It shows that... that Nothing is uh, is permanent in football. Everything is transient. 
but this looks a dead duck now. And by the end of that day, the not-so-carefully-laid plans of the dirty dozen, as they'd been labelled by the UK media, had completely unravelled. All six of the UK's clubs that had backed the idea had backed away from it, with reports that two of the three in Spain were about to follow suit, with their own fans urging them on as well. So that begs a question then, who would the idea of a new league have appealed to? Well, Tariq Panja, the New York Times journalist who broke the story in the first place, told the Irish sports podcast Second Captains they had a completely different type of fan in mind who could be reached via digital media platforms. What these guys are looking for is kind of the new football, I guess. These um, fans in, in faraway places who uh, consume uh, football as, as, as entertainment, nuggets of entertainment, are willing to put their hands in their pockets and, and buy things, uh, maybe buy TV rights um, to watch these guys. Tariq Panja said that the fans interested in those nuggets of entertainment include a generation of people all over the world who've grown up playing football computer games where you can pair up the most glamorous teams in Europe as often as you want, effectively simulating what real-life clubs were now proposing to create for them. And aside from exploiting that for profits, another driving force in all this was the disruption of COVID-19. For more than a year, the stadiums of these top teams have been empty, their competitions disrupted, and all revenue from sources other than broadcast deals has shrunk. And outside the global game of football, there's no bigger event more buffeted by the chaos of COVID-19 than the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which is still called that, even though the organisers long ago ran out of enough 2020 to actually stage it. They're now saying it'll be held in July this year, though, kicking off less than 100 days from now, and there's a full schedule of events online already. But it will be, as the New Zealand Herald put it this week, the weirdest games ever, with few fans, no overseas guests, and even the bigwigs in the IOC won't be able to bring in their customary entourage for the fortnight. And there are still those who already reckon the Olympics in July in Japan is a terrible idea. The British Medical Journal said the organisers are ignoring science, and Professor Michael Baker from the University of Otago told Newstalk ZB's Sunday session show last weekend, Kiwi athletes probably shouldn't go. The Olympic Committee and all their backers and um, committees around the world should just think about what this is symbolising if they go ahead with the Games at the moment. How far off do you think the world is from being able to safely hold an event like this, Michael? I think uh, the the suggestion of postponing it for another year I think is sensible. But another year's delay for the Olympics is the last thing Sky TV wants. This past year, because of COVID, they've struggled to keep sports on the air in order to keep their subscribers because most major competitions, which usually fill up the hours on their huge number of live sports channels, were suspended. So how did they fill the void and are things getting back to normal? And how will they cover the Olympics in Tokyo during the pandemic? Well, for more than a decade now, Tex Texera has been Sky's Director of Sport and Broadcasting and then its Chief of Content. And for 20 years before that, he worked for South Africa's preeminent pay TV outfit, Supersport. Last week, Tex Texera was appointed to a brand new role at Sky, Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement. I asked him what that job title actually means, but first, was he startled this week to see those billionaires backing the elite European Football League this week forced to back away from it within three days? We had heard for some time uh, the bigger clubs not necessarily being happy and wanting to have greater control, especially greater financial control, but we were surprised it actually got to this point where there was a list 
10 or 12 clubs who had committed to this supposedly. So that, that, that was a little bit of a surprise that it had gone this far. Amazing to think of these, uh, you know, billionaire owners, some of them, and really like Andrea Agnelli in Italy, the uh, chairman of the Juventus Football Club, and really John Henry, you know, the, the Fenway Sports Group, they own Liverpool Football Club and also the Boston Red Sox, and he was, you know, doing a social media video basically groveling for forgiveness from the Liverpool fans. Did you ever think you'd see anything like that? No. And and that's and that's just a, this this is just a, a stark reminder for everyone, including us, and that is it, the fans. The fans. It's all about the fans. Colin, I actually uh, have my 82-year-old mother who lives in Portugal, who is a, a, a big Porto fan, and I spoke to her this morning, and she said, "Well, it's just crazy that they even tried to do this." And her words were something along the lines of, "How much more money do these powerful men need?" And to be honest, the fans also realised that. It is, there is the specialness in playing each other, you know, only once or twice a year. If you have too much of anything, you, you get bored with it. You know, the All Blacks play in the Springboks once or twice a year is great. But four or five times a year, it loses what it, what it stands for, you know, the tribalism. So I'm glad the fans have spoken and I'm glad that these uh, powerful chairmen have realized that the fans actually and deserve to, to be heard. Because mm, part of your new job title actually is, you know, community engagement. Is, is I mean, is this an example of what happens when you don't uh, do that? Because these owners kept it all secret, didn't they? Is this what happens when you don't get the support of your supporters? Absolutely, I, I, absolutely, Colin. In this day and age, what we're realising just with the power and and being so connected as we are with social media and, and digital platforms, just realise that the fans have got this united voice that they can they can work together. And if if you're not doing what the fan or the customer wants, they will tell you straight, and they can they can change your business. And we need to listen and and, and respect that. Yeah, one of the things that seemed to be common among supporters who reacted against this was the kind of lack of jeopardy. This would be a closed shop. Um, James Corden, the British broadcaster hosts a talk show in the US he did this big long monologue talking to us explaining this to them they've taken the jeopardy out of it but his audience didn't kind of get it but I mean they've got that in the US haven't they really popular NBA NFL these are franchise things where even if you perform poorly you'll you'll be there next year and indeed we have this here don't we with Super Rugby um, the A-League which you also broadcast on Sky you hit the nail on the head there Colin because that's exactly what they were modeling this uh, is on the NBA model, which which is they would all come together, 12 clubs and then potentially up to 15. Uh, they would take all this money and then share it amongst them uh, evenly. But um, it's incredible, without mentioning names, some of the debt that some of these clubs had on their books. And so hence why I can understand why for them they felt that um, you know, this was the, the best way forward was to have this guaranteed revenue um, you know, over the next five or whatever years to to help offset uh, their debt, but um, again, sadly, I don't think that that's what the fans wanted, or or what football in particular uh, is all about, because it is about the smaller teams, you know, getting the opportunity. And if you talk about you know the rugby and example rugby world cup, Colin, and you know Japan beating South Africa and uh, you know Fiji, what they've done and and so on. Um, that's what sport's about, you know. It's not just about an exclusive club playing each other all the time. It's about, at some point, the little guy getting an opportunity to, be, to beat the big guy and prove themselves uh, on whatever stage that may be. You mentioned there, Tex, that some of these 
big elite European clubs want more power control and influence over um, and probably more of the revenue too from these these well-watched competitions. But do you think COVID and maybe if teams are in debt, COVID would have made things worse for them this past year? Do you think that COVID actually, yet again, this is another example of COVID disrupting sport? Yes, very much. And I guess that was one of the other stats that, that was put out was their, their financials from 2019 to 2020 and how these 10 top clubs had, had suffered. And yes, they, they were pretty big numbers, Colin. I mean, they were, they were triple digit. Uh, it was quite a couple of zeros on those. So totally understand that COVID had had a massive impact. We do understand that, that life's become harder for them and, and they need to remain profitable, not just sustainable. Andrea Agnelli from the Juventus Club in Italy, he, he has still been holding this line, even as the project seems to be collapsing, that the next generation of fans and the coming generation of fans, they're a bit different. They play football computer games, which you know you can easily match up Liverpool and Madrid or something in the way this league would. He even talked about those serving as a kind of simulation, and they were working on something that would actually deliver what this um, this kind of digital native generation might enjoy, you know, this high entertainment and almost high celebrity type of football. I mean, innovation is now part of your new role in Sky. Is he also right that actually there is there is also a coming generation of fans whose, whose taste might be completely different? Yes. Yes, so I think he is right there. From the millennials and you work your way down to Gen Z, Gen Z you know, they are potentially uh, consuming very differently and or potentially not consuming sport at all. And then, you know, you've got the under-18s, which is an area we'd like to start focusing on, which is how do, how do we uh, influence them for good? And maybe an opportunity to talk about that a, a little bit later, but but totally, he's right, and that is um, a lot of these younger people are consuming very differently and their interest might not necessarily be uh, the same as ours in consuming the way we do, especially long form. Their attention spans might not be the same. Financially, they might not be able to afford what we can. They might not have the same amount of time as we have. Hopefully, what they do have, though, Colin, is is heroes, you know, and and people that they look up to, be it be it a, be it a hero on the field or be it a hero on the screen or however they consume it. And and that is something we should work on. Hopefully, what you're looking for, and that is you see sport as 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 something good. Sport needs to be seen as something good. Uh, in your life, in whichever way you are consuming or attracted to it. Well, your new role, Tex, um, Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement, so quite a bit to fit on the business card there. I can understand why something like a public broadcast or a major free-to-air one, for example, might need to make you know a priority of community engagement. But you know, for Sky, I would have thought, look, you provide sport and entertainment by subscription. It's kind of a simple commercial transaction you're offering to customers. Buy it, don't buy it. Do, do you really need to worry so much about engaging with the community or just, just offering them what, what you think they want? Yes. And look, you know, Colin, we, that word community can, as you, uh, I'm sure, uh, will hopefully agree, can be used quite extensively. Because for us, we look at communities, you know, for example, schools, the, the schools communities that we'd like to, to work with, in, again, in a positive, proactive way. There's um, 
there's communities we could look at it as at the metros in New Zealand. Those are a type of community, whereas rural New Zealand is potentially a very different community. Then we have, you know, uh, the Pacifica community. We have the Murray community. Uh, we then have uh, women's sport, and you could look at that as a community. Um, and then you can look at all the clubhouses uh, around New Zealand in whichever sports code, and those have their own communities. And I think for us what we're saying is, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and I think we, uh, the more time we spend out there and we need to understand their challenges and also, you know, their interests, and we need to work closely with them. And we, we think there's a lot of opportunity out there with, um, for example, clubhouses, and the opportunity to work with a lot of these clubhouses around New Zealand and bring Sky to the clubhouse, but also have, have the clubhouse become more important and more relevant in young people's lives and a place that they go, can go to that is safe, a place they can go to that can, that can be engaged, they can learn, whether it be at life skills, they can learn well-being, and yes, and they can participate um, and stay fit and stay active and have fun. Well, the, the statement last week that announced your new role said uh, Tex will have a special focus to drive equality in women's sport and to encourage participation and engagement in sports across the country. And uh, it also says uh, build strong relationships uh, with a particular focus on Pacifica and Māori leaders in sport. So what sort of changes do you think you have in mind to achieve those things? I think, look, with the women's sport, I think we've, we've actually um, embarked on this route already. Uh, this year for the first time we'll be showing the entire Farrah Palmer Cup uh, in one form or another, be it on Sky or on some of our uh, streaming platforms. So that's another advancement that we've made with women's sport. Um, we're also looking at opportunity, um, you know, on camera where we're sending um, our entire presentation team going to the Olympics is, is female, and that's pretty exciting, and it's the first, that we, first time we do that. We're also looking at creating a lot more uh, of our content um, around women's stories and be it our national teams, be it provincial teams, there's just a lot we can do. So we've actually adopted a phase which is side by side. So we talk about women's and men's sport as being side by side. So if we're doing one thing for the one, we're making sure we're doing the same for the other. And does that extend to uh, things like on screen, like panels, uh, you know, mixed genders or mixed ethnicities, and you'd actually be looking at that and making sure you're not skewing too far in one way or the other, or even, I don't know, behind the camera, uh, the, the production teams and all of that, are you, are you going to be looking at those areas as well? Yes, yes we are. And look, Colin, what we've got to remember also at the same time is, so the answer is yes, and at the same time we've also got to remember that we have... Uh, our customer base that is used to and and pays us to to watch certain things, and so what we need to do is is find a balance that works for our for our currently current engaged customers, but also uh, creates an opportunity where people um, maybe not necessarily uh, in the current customer base, but maybe sitting on the fringe, or, or, or you get casual casual fans that look and go hey, actually. That's interesting. I'm glad you've done that. Actually, I'm now interested uh, more in the sport because of that individual or because of the changes you've made. So um, it's not something that we can change overnight, Colin. That is something that we've embarked on already and, and have been uh, for some time now. But I think what we're doing now is just making it more defined. And our teams, as, as you are, as you clearly uh, asked, in front of camera and behind camera, that's the work that we're doing, and that is it should be part of our normal everyday life that we're looking at this is side by side 
Well, in the statement announcing your new role, uh, your boss, Sophie Maloney, who's um, the first woman to uh, to be at the top at Sky, uh, she said, we saw during COVID-19 what it feels like to have no crowds in sport. None of us liked it. Um, look, overseas, that's still the case, uh, but things are starting to turn and change. Um, seeing as you have this sort of uh, live sport innovation role now as part of your job title, it, is, is this going to change? Will the experience of live sport on TV change as more of these global sports come back, possibly in a slightly new form, because um, you know COVID has disrupted everything, and they have to sort of start again from from scratch. Colin, very good question, and and I'm going to be straight up with you. Uh, that is part of the learning that I'm going to go through uh, over the next couple of months uh, to try and decipher what what where do we um, take innovation next. From an on-screen point of view, I, I see the improvements as, as being marginal. I don't see a massive change in in innovation in terms of from a traditional platform. Um, I do see some changes, and, and Sky is continuing to do that, um, be it with some of the uh, data and analytics that we've started introducing. We're also looking at things like player mics, and we've got player cam, and we will continue to, to innovate in that space. But I think the biggest opportunity to innovate is potentially either on the second screen uh, or either dedicated apps which are focused and giving fans a different and or an alternate option to what mainstream uh, TV is doing. Imagine you can't go to the stadium, Colin, and you, you might never be able to get there. Uh, having something like a, a virtual ticket, for want of a better word, where we, you can customize your viewing and you could choose the camera angles that you wanted to watch. And with that, you could maybe choose your own commentary and so on. Um, we also think that innovation might be something along the lines of uh, getting you to attend a game and watch a game and you get some prizes, you know. Um, looking at, at, at players and, and getting really behind the scenes with an athlete and understanding what makes them tick. Um, music and sport is something that we, we believe, you know, works really well and we think that we can do more in that space. Is something that people start admiring. So I, I think innovation is, is not so much about changing what's on the big screen because, you know, if you look at how football was covered 20 years ago, in theory, it hasn't changed too much. We've just added probably another six or eight or ten camera angles. Uh, I think the innovation is coming, you know, as a parallel opportunity to that. Um, this role that I have and, and what, what Sophie's asked me and the team to try and achieve, it's we have to do this with partners. And, and may I say, even partners like yourself, you know, because what we're trying to do, if you had to say to me, what's the three key things you're trying to achieve? Well, what I'm trying to achieve, Colin, is I'm trying to get together with the sports codes. We're trying to get more people to go to games, to go to stadiums. We're trying to get more people to watch uh, content, be it on TV or on their devices. We're trying to get more people to engage and participate in sport and to have fun. And we've talked about innovation there, but you, I guess you had to innovate or maybe more accurately improvise. If I take you back... Um, 12 months, uh, you know, the lockdown was on, sports suspended, I mean, here all around the world. I was looking at uh, getting those bulletins, just wholesale changes to the schedule. You have all those channels to fill with. Suddenly, just about all your key sports must have been, if not knocked out entirely, then, you know, completely changed in terms of scheduling it. I mean, you must have had ulcers at that time, just trying to find ways of keeping those channels full and on air and praying your subscribers wouldn't all just... Um, wouldn't all just sort of cash up and and um, and scrap their subscriptions? Well, you you know, uh, absolutely. I mean, Colin, when we look back now, 
I, I have to just pat my colleagues and, and everybody involved on the back because it's incredible what we were able to turn around in such quick time. And I think the first thing that we were able to achieve was uh, an, an, a huge uh, thank you to our technology team at Sky who just in a very short period of time were able to get 500 plus people able to work remotely. And think about that, you know, that's not easy. Not only able to work remotely, but able to access our schedules, able to access um, some of our archives. We did have a dedicated core team that was allowed to, um, essential workers that was allowed to be at Sky. And again, huge thank you to that team of roughly 30 people that, you know, spent, you know, up to two months at one point, just that's all they did. They lived and breathed that every single day, weren't allowed to be in contact with anyone, just had to spend their time at Sky and make sure they could service the entire uh, business. But also what happened, Colin, was just the creativity that was able to flow from our teams. Um, that, that was amazing. What we also felt was, was amazing was the support that we got from our partners. So, for example, with rugby, just how the Players Association came forward and how the RPA went and said, we're here, we want to help you. And all of a sudden, we got this incredible access to players and the players were so supportive and allowed us into their homes and, and really helped us to create great content. Um, you know, New Zealand rugby were fantastic. They also stepped up and really helped us to to innovate and try new things and then our rights holders our rights holders were great because we were able to talk to them and say look we need help here how can you help us and in every way they tried to help us um with something new the netball guys uh went out and, and realized look if we're going to be at home for a while how can we help fans so they come up with some coaching videos which is awesome so all of a sudden we were able to access some put up some coaching tips uh on our platforms um and our programming teams um, we're able to go back into our archives. So you know what? It was an incredibly challenging time and, and how powerful we are and just how much we can achieve if we just all put our hearts and minds into it. We can actually really achieve so much. Yeah, even creating entirely new shows, not just everyone having to work remotely, but making content with people, with athletes who themselves were having to, like a program like Isolation Nation. Correct. You guys missing rugby? Well, so are we. Welcome to Isolation Nation. Say hi. Hi. Four walks, just like that. Here's my baby. You're not being me, bro. Trying to keep fear amount of normality to this isolation period. I mean that, and that was that, that that was incredible, and that was us in New Zealand rugby. And every week we had to tweak the concept, Colin, because every week we were like, "Oh, so we actually can do that." Well, let's try that then. Um, and every week there was something new that we we learned. And if you think about it, all those shows were edited and packaged remotely. I mean, that, that's just in, you know incredible to be able to do that in a, such a short period of time. I suppose I'm talking about this almost as if, you know, it's all over and everything's returning to normal. But, I mean, for you, I'm, I'm sure that it isn't. I mean, for example, less than 100 days away, the 2020 Olympics in 2021 um, uh, should be getting going in Tokyo. Um, presumably, you really want them to go ahead. But, you know, there is a chance they won't go smoothly or there could even be another delay. To go back now, I, I just don't think that'll happen. I totally respect and understand that how great the risk is because you know how dangerous COVID is so I totally I totally get that I, I just think that the IOC and what it stands for um, will do its utmost to, to to make this a symbolic games and one that shows how we overcome adversity as humans our teams 
can uh, operate uh, within a bubble that is safe for our people. And that is a priority that we have, and as is the priority of athletes for the NZOC. And I think we've got really good plans in place and protocols in place to be able to, to achieve that. They, they will do their utmost to make it a success. I mean, maybe do you have the option of just taking coverage down the pipe from, you know, the, the providers in, in Tokyo and not going at all? Um, but we looked at that option, Colin, and, and what happens is uh, there's a lot that we think Kiwis will miss out on because the way uh, the delivery works from, from the host broadcaster who are called OBS, Olympic Broadcast Services, they have a... a default handover point um, which is a gateway and they hand the feeds to us at this pickup point and then it's our responsibility to pick the feeds up from there and um, so there was the potential that there would be certain events that we would miss if we didn't have a team on the ground uh, to route all the feeds then there's also the uh, potential that we'll miss a lot of the kiwi emotion um, once these athletes have finished competing and we will never get uh, you know the joy of winning or, or potentially the joy of not winning uh, we'll never get those moments again um, and so we weighed this up quite extensively and we scaled our team down quite dramatically so we've only got 17 people going up now uh, to based in tokyo most of the team will literally uh, move from one location to another, and that's it. And then what we also have is we've got a, another team that is actually producing the rugby for the host broadcaster. They're producing the rugby, the modern pentathlon, and the uh, football qualifiers, working directly with the Olympic Broadcast Services uh, in delivering the rugby to, to the whole world. There's a, there's a lot that's been put in place to achieve this, Colin, but I'll be honest with you, there's a couple of extra grey hairs uh, that have come along. I'd be surprised if there are only a couple. Okay, well, yeah, as you say, it will be a, a, a tournament, uh, I guess, an Olympiad like no other. But just to, to finish off, perhaps we'll, we'll go back almost to where we started. I mean, you mentioned there actually rugby. I mean, rugby is, you know, the key thing for you, such as perhaps the um, the European football we've been hearing about is, is uh, you know, the, the key property in that part of the world for broadcasters and, and media companies. Um You've still got the exclusive rights to the All Blacks, which has kind of un- underpinned a lot of Sky Sports subscription appeal uh, for years and years and years now. Um, they've even got their own debates at the moment with you know the American investors, Silver Lake, you know, wanting to uh, buy into the All Blacks. People warning about that. Some of the players saying they don't like it. So echoes there of what's played out in Europe this past week. Um, I think the rugby union even has a stake in. Sky these days. Do you have any say in you know what arrangements you know will be governing the All Blacks and and how they structure themselves financially um, while you're still the exclusive uh, broadcaster f- for them? Um, Colin, I would say it, it's. I, I don't think it's a case of do we have a say, but I do think as as part of our partnership agreement, um, anything as substantial as as a decision uh, like this. Um, New Zealand Rugby, uh, who are great partners, by the way, w- would come and consult with us and, and will do so. Um, but at the end of the day, obviously, it is their business and they need to they need to run rugby in New Zealand. But we are obviously the biggest partner and um, we, we do continue to engage and talk with them. And um, we obviously continue to, to believe and respect that they are doing the best for the game. Um, 
and what's important. And we, we understand that obviously there's, there's talks underway and there's you know numerous parties involved and we understand how important it is for the players to understand what their future looks like um, and as important as it is for the fans. And you know this, the brand called all, this thing called the All Blacks, which is, which is powerful and not just the All Blacks, but the Black Ferns and the Sevens. You know, these, are, these are powerful, powerful brands um, that you know, has taken in some cases you know, 100 years to build and those need to be nurtured and, and looked after and whatever decisions are made um, need to factor in you know, the long-term future because New Zealand is a rugby nation. Um, you know, I moved to New Zealand because of you know, rugby and the opportunity that I had um, and it is known for, for being you know, the home of rugby. Yes, Colin, I know an ex-South African just said that, but it is known as the home of rugby. And I think it's important that uh, whatever decision New Zealand rugby makes and is hopefully making is looking at the game that way, that it, it's all about its long-term longevity and making sure that the fans continue to have access and the fans continue to support the best players and the best teams in the world. And just finally, your part of your job, will it be to manage those relationships with other sporting codes in New Zealand, you know, some of those rely pretty heavily on income from Sky uh, to broadcast their events. And I guess, you know, post, post-COVID and when these things get renegotiated, maybe they won't be as lucrative as in the future. Will you have some difficult relationships or difficult um, uh, negotiations perhaps with, with other more minor non-rugby uh, sporting codes in New Zealand? Well, Colin, look, I, I, I'm part of a bigger team that, uh, that works with the, um, the various sports codes. Um, so I'm only one component of it and I've got other colleagues uh, in our commercial team and our partnerships team together obviously with Sophie our CEO um, who, who drive those discussions I think what's important and hopefully we've proven this uh, over the last couple of years is just how committed we are to sport in New Zealand Colin because you know to be honest we don't just take feeds from overseas uh, if you look at, at the plethora of content we have um, we are heavily invested in sport in New Zealand and if you take the Sky Sport Next program um, that we've committed to and is now starting its, its, its third year uh, hopefully that shows just how committed we are to not just the major codes but to sport in New Zealand and we do believe that um, there's many ways we can support the sports so yes while financial is probably the number one aspect for a lot of these sports but in a lot of cases Colin there's also the opportunity to give them exposure to help them with their partners to help them with production capability to help them to maybe uh, drive better commercial deals and so on so we will continue to support the sports as much as we can um, we, we, we want to be part of that uh, a future in sport we want to help the Olympic pathway sports. We also think there might be other sports that are up and coming um, and we want to be part of that discussion and we will do our best to look at each sports code and have good honest discussions with these sports and see how best we can help them because Colin, honestly, we, we do have skin in the game in New Zealand. We are part of New Zealand Fibre and we hopefully will be that for many, many years to come because we care about sport, we care about Kiwis, we care about healthy lifestyles, we care about well-being, we care about people having fun and enjoying themselves and, and we want sport to reflect that and we want to be a part of that uh, future with Kiwis. That was Sky TV's newly appointed Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement, Tex Texera, who was formerly Sky's Director of Sport and Broadcasting.